0: Well, if you have your Bibles or however you're accessing scriptures, the scriptures, go ahead and find your way to Ephesians chapter two, where we're going to look at ten verses, the first ten verses this morning, and we're going to talk about a concept that most of us are familiar with, some of us think we got a handle on, other of us don't have a clue about, and we'd love to understand more about, and it's this this thing called grace. And even when I use the word grace in church, we're like, yeah, that's a normal Christian term. That's something we hear all the time. But how many of us actually understand what grace means in our life and what that looks like? And one of the things as I've been preparing for this Sunday and just thinking through, we're kind of going through the summer looking at different passages of what I feel like God wants our our church to hear. And and when I came to the concept of grace, and and you just start to think about what does it mean to actually experience God's grace? So for us, one of the things that we have to understand is, is grace is not like a pill that you take and suddenly, oh, I have grace. It's not some substance that God exchanges with you. It's not some kind of pass for your sin. Grace, to best be understood, is a context. It's an environment. It's almost like a realm. It's a place where you and I get to dwell in a relationship with God in a way that we get to experience life that we've never experienced before. It's much bigger than we think that it is. And the reason it's so important to understand grace that way is because the context that we live in is usually graceless. And that's, I don't mean that in terms like we don't have a lot of grace with people. But when grace is present, life happens, understanding happens, acceptance happens, peace happens. Why? Because despite our sin and our brokenness, we're in an environment where we're accepted, we're a part of God's family, For example, when our kids were younger, Kim came up with this saying, which was really smart. Um, Our kids are not perfect. Anybody have imperfect kids? Yeah, we all do. But one of the things that we established for them at a very young age was that they needed to know that our household and our relationship with them, that when they blew it and when they fell apart and when the world came crashing down around them, home was always, always a safe place. It was a safe place for them to fall and so that they knew in the moment of stumbling they could get up why because they were in this this realm of safety that's grace that's what god calls us to live in why is that so important because most of us whether we know it or not some of us know this actually we live in not in grace but i think the best term to describe it is we live in torment internally we live in a context where we don't know what to do with our brokenness. We don't know what to do with our sin. We don't know how to heal ourselves. We don't know how to get free from our sin. We don't know how to manage our life. And so inside, we're constantly being tormented by our brokenness and the brokenness of other people and the sinfulness in our lives and in their lives and how it impacts us. And we struggle internally. But we live in a culture that's supposed to we're supposed to project that we're successful and we're happy and all the things that we're supposed to be. But inside, we're haunted because we can't fix ourselves. This week, it happened again. It seems like every week you hear, and it happens more than just when it hits the media, but it happens even in our city. But this last week, if you you heard, the the lead singer of Linkin Park, Chester Bennington, took his life. Here is somebody who's at the pinnacle of his career. They're about to go on another world tour, and they've sold millions of dollars worth of albums. The guy's famous. He's a creative. He's incredible. Yet something inside of him has been tormenting him for most of his life. And he had no context in order to deal with that. In fact, if you hear a little bit of story, I remember when I first heard it, I'm like, not again. It's almost in one ear and out the other because it seems to happen more frequently. But if you know a little bit of Chester Bennington's story, when he was very young, he was abused. And that abuse led to him living life a certain way. And the result of that is that he found his way into drugs. And and drugs weren't enough. So he just had to expand and became addicted to so many things in his life. In one interview, he looked back over his life and he goes, no wonder I'm a mess. No wonder I'm addicted. No wonder because, because I, I basically can't fix myself. The tragedy is that he never found his way into an environment and a context that Jesus has provided through his death on the cross that we are welcome into this thing called grace. And for me, kind of the working definition for grace and what it's like is this. Grace is this. God says to you and I, strangers, that we are strangers from God, away from him. He welcomes us into this thing called grace, and he says this to us. Though you're a stranger, I call you a family member. I call you a son and a daughter, and I will continue to call you that until you stop living like a stranger and start living like a family member. The reason that's important is that you and I think we have to be good enough to get into God's grace, which is the opposite of what grace is. See, God says, I choose to accept you first. And in the context of grace, what you start to experience is your behavior and your, the way you think about yourself begins to change. Not because you're trying to be good enough, but because you're in a context where you're in a safe place to be honest about your sin and your brokenness and your failure. And through what Jesus has done on the cross, taking your sin off of you, now you can learn what it is to actually be who God created you to be. Now, for some of us, we struggle with that, and we'll talk about this from this passage this morning, that God invites us, and for some of you this morning, you're either gonna be leaning in on this, or you're gonna be pushing back, and we'll talk about what that looks like, because already I know some of the songs we sang this morning, I mentioned this first service, they were too intimate for some of you. You're like, oof, you're freaking me out here. God being a gentle lover, yeah, that's like going Song of Solomon, right? It's like, I feel awkward, why? Because you don't know how to walk in God's grace, because what God's grace leads to is intimacy with God. And that's what God desires for us. So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Let me read these, and then we'll walk through them together. The Apostle Paul writes this. He says in verse 1, And you were dead in the uh, trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, You have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. For good works which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Every time we read passages of Scripture like that, I'm overwhelmed with how much is there. There's a lot, but we're going to walk our way through it and and unpack it together. So, how amazing is God's grace in our life? The first reality is you see in the passage. There's like the first section and the section second section. It's like the bad news and the good news, and then they kind of compare and contrast with each other. The first reality about God's grace is this: that it actually wakes the dead. Look at what it says in the first part of verse 1. Pretty straightforward. You were dead. Now you think dead. I have breath in my lungs and blood in my veins and my heart is beating right now. I think I'm alive, right? What does it mean by dead? If you go on to verse 5, which is the comparison, it says, even when you were dead in trespasses, God made us, the opposite of death, is what, alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So what is Paul talking about? You and I physically are not dead right now. We're alive. That's why we're here. We got to church. That means there's evidence that we're alive today. We're moving. We have, our heart is beating. What does death mean? Death has a lot of meanings. One of those means is that you and I are at a distance and separated from God. But when you think of dead, that means the opposite of dead is life. Life means that you have the ability to do something. When you're dead, you can't do anything for yourself. You're dead. But I think a better understanding of what death looks like in our lives, when we're disconnected from God, is that there's something about us that is dormant. There's something that God created in us that is supposed to look like life, but instead it looks like death. Because we haven't walked into what? The context of grace yet. And the only thing that brings to life us is grace. The law doesn't bring life. The law brings death. But when we walk into grace, something inside of us, comes alive why because what jesus has done on the cross he's lifted the weight of sin off of us and now what's deep down inside what god has always purposed for us now comes to life maybe can you can take it in, in this this way is it's and i i'm i am not a green thumb i'm not a big garden guy so don't don't come after me out of the service if you like have a degree in horticultural and you're going to take me to task on what i'm about to say okay i'm a simple guy i just observe what i see Okay, when we were in Oregon, I discovered something that I didn't understand, that, that tulips only kind of bloom at a certain time of year in a certain kind of context. It just so happens in the Willamette Valley in Oregon, it's a perfect context. So in, in Oregon, it gets cold enough to the winter where there's a number of times that there's a hard freeze, but then it gets warm enough and the right around mo- mo- moisture in, this, in the springtime for tulips to bloom. But here's the way it works. In fact, show the, the first picture, okay? So this is a bulb for a tulip that goes into the ground. It doesn't look, looks like a potato or something, right? That you would like, what is this? You dig it up in your garden. You're like, something's weird here. And you throw it out. But that's what it looks like. Doesn't look like much. Now in a context where there's too much moisture or too much heat, tulips won't grow. They won't, they won't break ground and they won't blossom. But when there's the right freeze, there's the right amount of moisture and there's the right amount of heat at the right season, they will actually break ground and then they will flourish and they will blossom. And they're Beautiful. In fact, these look like the next picture in Oregon every spring. This is a place called Woodburn. This is about 30 miles, or not even that far, about 20 miles from where we were living up in Newburgh. That's Mount Hood in the background. But every spring, they have this big tulip festival in in Woodburn, and it looks like this. And we went a couple times, and it is incredible. I mean, it's, it's almost unreal. It looks fake, but it's real, and it's because the setting and the context for tulips is perfect in the Willamette Valley, and this is what happens. And see, so what happens is every year, though, these bulbs are dormant in the ground until the right context comes along. And then what seems to be dead or dormant actually comes to life every year. Some of us in this room have never experienced life before. You may be alive, but you truly are not living Because you haven't walked into this beautiful relationship with God that says you live in grace. No longer are you a stranger. You are a family member. You are part of my family. I'm calling you into this. I'm inviting you into this. And you're living on the outside thinking you're alive, but you're actually dead. Because what's inside of you has never come out. The true life that God has given you has never come to the surface yet because you haven't been in the right context. Second reality of God's grace is this. This is in verse 1, verse 4. Is that it gives freedom... To the prisoner. So if you go on in verse 1, it says that you were dead in the trespasses and sins. But then in verse 4 it says, But God being rich in mercy because of his great love, it says mercy and his love comes along and counters the reality of trespasses and sins are the things that hold you and I in our state of being dormant or dead. It isn't that just you and I are just dead. We're actually being held there by our decisions, the decisions of other people, our sins and failures, the sins and failures of other people. We are now bound. We are prisoners. And you may not know that you're a prisoner, but but you know when you are trying to get out of something that you can't get out of without somebody else's help, you're a prisoner. A prisoner doesn't get set free on their own. A prisoner has to be set free by someone else. If you go free as a prisoner and someone hasn't set you free, you have just, what, escaped and you're still a convict. And you're, you're now the, your days are numbered until you're caught again. But somebody has to grant you freedom from your sins and your trespasses and your guilt so that you can be free. That's the cross. That's Jesus' death. That's what happened. He took, what, all of our sin and our failure, and he put it on himself so that we could be free. So what? Through God's mercy and his love for us, we could be free from what's broken us. Why is that important? Because I think sometimes in our life, we think that if, if, if we can free ourselves, then we will be happy. We have this idea that we can set ourselves free, and we can't. We can't. I want, now just for a moment, just for a moment, just think about in your life, not anybody else's life, just your life, a recurring sin. Now, for some of you, you can come up with 10 right away. For others of you who are a little bit more mature and spiritual, you're going to have to pray about it and think about it, okay, to, to actually find one sin in your life, Okay? But something that you know that maybe has been a part of your life for a while. And you've had seasons where you thought, I'm free. And then suddenly you find yourself right back in bondage again. So just, I want you to think about that. So think about that cycle and how that works in your life. Because all of us go through this. Because this is kind of the the normally, the, the way that we do this. When we think about that, the answer to that issue is one of a few ways that we address it. First off, I'm just going to work harder. Anybody can relate? You're like, I am going to get over this thing this time. I am going to fight this. I am going to do everything I can. And I know it's just about just, just my will alone. I'm going to just will my way through this. I'm going to f- be free from the, the substance or this relationship or this behavior. And you work really hard. And maybe you find freedom for a day or a week or a month, but then you find yourself right back where you started. And then you feel like you want to give up. If it's not working harder, what it is is maybe I just need to focus more. You know what we have a tendency to do? We find a sin in our life, and we focus on it, right? If I just focus more on dealing with this issue, then when I'm done with that one, I can move on to the next one, and the next one, and the next one. You know what I found in my life? The more I focus on sin, the more I sin. Because the answer to sin is not to look at sin. That's the problem. So we just, if I focus more, I can just really deal with this, and that doesn't work. So if we focus more, if we work harder, something's going to change. And then some of us, and I know this is me, If I just felt more guilty and if I just felt more convicted, then I would change. So we get into this self-loathing, how horrible we are, and we beat ourselves up and like, yeah, God wants me to feel really bad about myself, so then I'll change. Working for anybody? Doesn't. Because what happens is shame takes over your life and drives you deeper, deeper, deeper into the hole that you're digging for yourself. Because that focuses, again, what? It focuses in on sin. What you and I don't have is the, 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 what freedom gains for us, what grace gains for us, is this thing called traction. And traction is what happens when you actually have something that grabs and moves you forward as opposed to spinning your wheel. Ever been stuck in mud or in snow in a car? And mo- some of us are like, well, I'm just going to get out of it, so you step on the gas harder. And what happens is your wheels spin faster and faster, and the hole therein gets deeper and deeper, and it won't, it won't change, it'll only make it worse. Traction is when somebody comes along with something like a piece of wood or a board and sticks it underneath your tire and then when you hit the gas the tire or the tire grabs the wood and it actually gets out of the hole that's grace and we're trying really hard to get ourselves free. And God says, the only way you find freedom is in the context of grace, which is what? Where I welcome you in as a stranger and I call you a family member. And he doesn't point to our sin. He doesn't welcome us in on the basis of our sin. He welcomes us in on the basis of his choice. He said, because Jesus, Jesus will say, I died for your sins so that now what? Now you can be free in the context of grace. It's not about sin. It's about who? Jesus. And sometimes we get, we get lost in that and we struggle with that. Then there's a third reality not only does it bring freedom to the prisoner, but God's grace actually transforms our identity. And this is huge. The majority of the decisions you make in your life are not based on behavior alone, they are based on how you view yourself. So listen to what it says in verse 2 and then verse 2 verse 6 again the kind of comparison. Paul says this, in which you once walked, following the course of this world. This is identity he's talking about. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's the context. That's the identity. We're disobedient. We're following the world. We're following the prince of the power of the air. And then verse 6. But then this is the new reality. What does God do? And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, what is He saying? Now you belong to Me. Now you're in My realm of grace. Now you are what seated in the heavenly realms. Now you are with Jesus. That's the comparison. Why is that important? Because how many times in your life do you make a bad decision based on what you think about yourself that is wrong? It's not the correct understanding of who God says that you are. It's who the world says that you are. It's who you say that you are. It's maybe even doing things out of what you think you're supposed to be but it's not the true reality because we have a perceived reality and a real reality. Our perceived kind of identity and our real identity. Our real identity is what God's working on and that is he says, I choose you as my son or my daughter. That's the real identity. But then we try to find happiness in other ways. If some of us just figured out once and for all that even though we're broken, failed, flawed sinners, that God by grace chose us to be a part of his family. We didn't earn it. And we embrace that reality that even though I know the brokenness in me and I've come to grips with that, if I really believe that God fully accepts me, then you would see yourself differently. The best kind of picture of this, the Bible uses this phrase to refer to us in relationship to God. We are what? We are adopted into God's family. The spirit of adoption has included us in the family. Even though, what, we're strangers, God makes his family members. I want you to watch just about a two or three minute video on a family that went through the process of adoption. I want you to watch what happens to the kids who are adopted and how they're going from being strangers on the outside to actually feeling like they belong. Let's look at this together.
1: My name is Christina Sanders.
2: And my name is Christopher Sanders. We met when we were teenagers. I thought she was pretty cute. She thought I was a stud, you know what I'm saying?
1: We always knew we wanted the family.
2: We got married shortly after that. We had a good life, man. We
1: had four boys, and then we tried again, and we had a girl. Ever since I was, like, nine years old, I can remember I have loved, love, love, love children.
2: Christina came to me and asked me if I would like to be a foster parent. I had to think about it because at that time we had five children of our own.
1: December... 3rd, 2014, we got a phone call and said it was four boys, it's an emergency, um, can we come now? And I said, yes.
2: There was some uh, addiction problems in their family that led them to our, our doorstep. I wasn't sure if they were going to accept me, you know, because I was just this big black guy, you know, and now I got this big black guy trying to tell me, you know, what to do and all this stuff. And, You know, that was my fear.
1: We found out that the boys had sisters, and that first weekend, the girls started coming over every week.
2: Family is family, man, you know. No one wants to be separated from their family.
1: We wanted to keep the children together, and that was our whole focus. It was six months in, and all the children were calling us mom and dad. The older children actually came to me and was like, will you adopt us? I was like, of course.
2: I officially have
0: signed the entry, so officially...
2: The day of the adoption, it was a very emotional day. I don't normally cry, but I definitely had my Kleenex box sitting there on the table.
1: All my children's names begin with a C. Christopher, Cameron, Kaden, Chaz, and Caitlin. And when the children were getting adopted, they asked if they can get their names changed to C as well. And I was like, sure.
2: Kobe, Christian, Caleb, Kaylee, Carson, and then that's Chloe.
1: I feel like our family is the ideal of American family.
2: Just love your children. You know, love is colorblind. Love is kind. Love is patience. I think without love, you know, None of this is possible
0: amazing so when you feel like you really belong you realize that you have a new name and I know it sounds cliche but I wish every morning when we get out of bed you could hear the words of God saying you are my child you're my son you're my daughter so when you go into the world today look at your life through that lens that you're accepted, and that you're loved. That's the context of grace. And then there's a fourth reality of God's grace, and that is that it changes our destiny. So listen to what Paul writes in verse 3 and then verse 7. He says in verse 3, And we're by nature, this is our former kind of reality, we were by nature children not of God, but children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. God makes us alive in the verse 7, it says, So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." What is Paul saying? He's saying, listen, outside the context of God's grace, which, by the way, God doesn't place people outside the context of His grace. We choose to remain outside. And when you and I choose to remain at a distance from God, then what happens is now we have a bullseye right on us. And that bullseye, that focus, is what? God's wrath, His judgment, His punishment for our rejection of Him. And so that, by nature, that's who we are. We are children not of God, children of wrath. But then when we make the choice to walk into grace, into an understanding of who Jesus is, then what happens is the target changes. No longer are we targeted by his wrath, but we're targeted by what? His grace, his kindness, his mercy that's poured out for us. It's this incredible, I mean, transformation. Think about that. We deserved what? Death and judgment and separation. And then when we step into God's family, what do we get? We get mercy and forgiveness and grace and love. That's crazy. It changes your destiny. Apart from God's grace, every person is destined to what? Wrath. But here's the beauty. How does that work? When Jesus willingly went to the cross on our behalf, he became the covering that took on the wrath of God on himself so that we could not, because we couldn't take it, but so that we didn't have to be targeted anymore. God's wrath was satisfied on the cross for our sin, not the sin of Jesus, but for our sin. That means that all of God's wrath now has been poured out on Jesus. Now, what does he pour out on his children? He pours out love and mercy and grace and acceptance. Significant. Why? Because I know in my life, and I'm convinced most of us in this room, we, if, we, if we really understood grace, we struggle with it. We really do. We have a hard time with grace. Let me explain what I mean by this. If you're like me, you are more like fairness and justice, right? Anybody like that in the room? Like, oh, it's not fair. That's my mantra growing up. So you're like, it's just not fair. So when we get to that context, we really struggle with grace because grace is not fair. Because it really is not fair to God. But, but when you think about it, this is the way God works. And this is where you and I have to learn to accept something that we just don't get, so I've told them story after story of my dad and the, and the crazy things growing up that he would do to demonstrate what Jesus was like. I learned so many valuable lessons, and I've told the story a million times about how my, my youngest sister was kidnapped for 10 minutes over a bag of candy, and basically my older sisters had to give back, give candy to these girls to get my sister back, and so when they got home, and I heard the story, I think I was five years old, I was mad, and I'm like, okay, it's payback time. We're going to go hunt these girls down, right, because they got their candy, and And so, long story short, my dad, we drive to 7-Eleven, he buys more candy, and I'm not figuring out what he's doing, and then we find them in an alley, these two girls eating my sister's candy, I'm like, okay, game on, there's four of us, there's two of them, we got this, and that's what I'm like, at five years old, I can take them, you know, because this is wrong, and then my dad gets out of the car, and he walks over to the girl and says, hey, as they're eating my sister's candy, I heard that you really like candy, and she goes, oh, I really do. As she's shoving it in her mouth. And he goes, well, I went to the store and I bought you more. And he hands it to her. And then he turns around and he walks away. I was even more angry. Like, this this is not fair. She doesn't deserve, not only did she not deserve my sister's candy, she doesn't deserve another bag of candy. And what my dad was displaying was the way God's grace and mercy work together. What does she deserve? She deserved to get a pounding in that alley with her friend. She did. And so that's what I thought we were doing, but no, 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 she, she gets what she took. She gets to keep that, which doesn't make sense. She should be punished for it. And then on top of that, she gets another bag of candy so that she can have what she really doesn't deserve, which is more candy. So she doesn't get what she does deserve, which is punishment, but she does get what she doesn't deserve, which what? Is more candy. That's mercy. That's grace. And I'll be honest with you, That stinks. In our mind, it does. Why? Because it's not fair. But now, put that towards you. You stole the candy. You took my sister hostage. You're the one that's violated. You're the one that's wrong. Why? Because that's exactly what we did towards God. But then God comes along and says, through my son, not only will I not give you what you do deserve, I'm going to give you what you don't deserve. I'm going to pile on my mercy and my grace and my love and my acceptance so I can be in a relationship. That is so backwards. That's grace. And that's why we struggle with it. Why? Because it's not fair. Aren't you glad that God is not fair to him? And so he cares enough for us to take that on. And then there's a fifth reality, and that is that God's grace ultimately redeems our purpose. Verse 3, the first part, Paul says, among whom were all at once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. That's, that's the, the, kind of the context of our life. But then what, verse 10, what God has for us is that it says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What Paul is comparing is that apart from God's grace, apart from Jesus, apart from relationship with God, what is the ultimate goal of humanity? It's one thing. It's pleasure. That's what it can be summed up in. How can I make my existence on this planet happy and pleasurable for myself? That's what we're driven by. Look at the culture that we're in. This is what, we, what drives us. How do I satisfy what I think I need in life in order for me to be happy at all costs? That means using other people and experiences, whatever it is. That's what drives us. What? The pleasures of mind and body. What can we have? The desires that we have. That's the reality. But then what is... What does Paul say the transition goes from what I want, what I think I need, and what I need to experience to what? God's workmanship in me of what he created me to do and to be in this world. Complete opposite. The process is redeeming us from our empty way of living, which seeks after pleasure, to a life that has purpose and experiences things that you and I, some of us have yet to experience. When we actually begin to experience God's purpose in our life, then we become alive. But how many? I I don't have to raise your hand, but I know when I seek pleasure in my life, it lasts for a moment. But then the result is there's a long period of not only a lack of pleasure, but torment over decisions you made to get that, and that's the cycle that we live in. The God says, No, no, no! It's not about you. It's about what I want to do in you. It's about my purpose. It's about taking what you've broken, what you've lost, and redeeming it back to what it was originally purposed for. That's our lives. When we were in the church in Ventura at Lighthouse and we went through the transition to get in our building, really interesting thing that I didn't know early on in the process but found out in the process. Me and our realtor met at the building before we actually took uh, kind of occupancy of it. And we were walking through the building and I was looking at different rooms. And I was asking the realtor, what's the history on this building? I knew at one time it was a church. A church had originally built out the walls. And, and, and I don't know what happened to that church, if it, they moved somewhere else or if they closed down. But then over the years it had been different businesses and and so it kind of been cut and converted back to like warehouse space and offices and things. And so we're walking through it, and I said, what's the background on this building? And he said, and he's kind of mentioned a few things in its history, but he said, most recently, he said, actually, a lot of people don't know this because you don't put signs up when you do this. He said, but this is actually one of the primary distributing points for porn in the city of Ventura. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. You never would have known that because you don't put out, you know, porn distribution site here. You don't do that. But, but that's what the building had started to be used for. This used to be a church. So when I'm walking through there, I'm thinking, oh, isn't this God? A building that was filled with his people and his glory and was being used for his purpose in the city became what, the primary avenue of something so destructive in the lives of people, and now God is coming and taking it back and saying, no, this building will be once again used for my purpose and my glory through my people. It was the coolest thing to take possession of a building and to kind of rinse that history. There's nothing sacred about a building, but it is pretty cool when a space is used for something destructive and God begins to use it for something redemptive in the lives of people. So what happens in us? God comes along and he looks at our lives and he says, yeah, you've done a great job of destroying yourself. Now let me rebuild you. Let me restore you. Let me, let me redeem you. What To a purpose that maybe you haven't even understood yet of what he actually created you to be before you were ever a thought, before you were ever a whisper, before you were ever existent. God had already designed something about your life by his workmanship, for his purpose, that if we actually tap into that, then you and I don't have to seek after pleasure anymore. Why? Because we find the fulfillment that all of our hearts long for. It's what we go after and always find try to find on our own, but never can attain it, never can receive it, never can experience it. And then the final reality is this. God's grace and its amazingness in our life, this is the truth, it is a gift from God. And you're like, duh, isn't that what this says, right? Two, two of the most famous verses in all the Bible, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. These two verses are so important, not just as memory verses or things that are cliche, but the truth is so important. Why is this concept of grace being a gift so important to us? Because we go to the extremes. We don't know how to deal with a gift. Because here's what's happened. When we are presented with the gift of grace, one of the two things that we do is we either want to take credit for it or we want to take responsibility for it. And you can't with a gift. When somebody gives you a gift, you can't take credit for that gift. And you can't take responsibility like somehow, now I take on the weight of the gift. It's just a gift that someone's offered you. And what do you do with a gift? You accept it. So here's, here's how it works with grace. We go to the two extremes. When God says, listen, by grace, I choose to call you son or daughter because what my son has done on the cross for you and welcome you into my family. This is the first thing we do. In the church, a lot of times we do this. We struggle with just accepting a gift, so we, we kind of take credit for it. And here's how we do that. Now, I'm not saying anybody says this, but in our minds, we kind of go through this. We look around the room, we see other people, and we think, you know, I'm not perfect, but I know I'm a little bit better than they are. Now, I know nobody really says that, but let's be honest. We think it. We look at someone, man, they got problems. Man, they struggle with a lot of deep sin. I know I'm bad, but I'm not that bad. So, what are you doing? you're taking credit for god's gift of grace in your life while finding somebody else who's worse off than you. Remember there's a story Jesus told of a tax collector and a religious leader that went to prayer and the tax collector is pouring out his heart, and he's beating his chest because he knows he's a broken person while the religious leader's looking down on him and saying, "Thank god I'm not like him." See Jesus knew that's the way we think. So what are we doing? We're we're having a tendency to what? Take credit for this. And what is that called? That's called pride. And pride tries to cover over our sin and brokenness. And you know what else it leads to when we take credit? We become judgmental of everybody around us. Because whether we know it or not, we're not saying it, but you know we're living with this reality? I'm just a little bit better than everybody else. And so somehow in our mind we think, then that justifies me to pass judgment on everybody else. And that's why Jesus talked about judgment in Matthew 7. And he talked about, you know, the speck in that person's eye compared to the plank in your eye. See, because this is that same thing. We forget all of us are under grace. All of us are sinners. All of us fall short. Yet somehow, just a little bit better. And you know what that ultimately leads to? It leads to this thing called legalism. That's what ends up happening in our life. We become legalists. Because why? If I take credit a little bit for God's grace, this gift that he's given me, then I've got to make sure that every T is crossed and every uh, I is dotted Why? Everything has to be just right because you've taken on some of the weight and responsibility of God's grace, which you can't do. You can't be a legalist if you understand grace. Why? Because you realize you can't be perfect. And that's the beauty of God's grace. Now there's the other side. If Some of us, we don't take credit. We go to the other extreme, which is we take the weight of responsibility, which means it's not pride. What ends up hitting us is that we start to look at our lives and we start living in shame because we know we're broken, but we're stuck in that mentality. And so we think things like this. How could God really love me? How could God really choose to accept me? And so what happens is shame and self-loathing kind of dominate our minds, and we constantly think about that. And so even though people talk about God's grace and how great his love is, we still don't believe it's for us. It's for all the other people. What is that? That's taking responsibility for what only God can do. And then what happens is then we, we constantly think in our mind we're not qualified, we're not good enough, we're not accepted. And we live in that. And so what happens is, I know this is one of my issues in my life. I will live inside my head and thinking, man, I just didn't do enough this week. I wasn't good enough. And therefore, I think somehow in my mind, I just haven't done enough for God to like me this week. Anybody want to be honest enough that, yeah, it's torturous. And then every once in a while, the Holy Spirit calls a timeout on my insanity and says, oh, by the way, it's grace. It's a gift. And in the way the Holy Spirit speaks to me, in a sense, he's saying, would you just chill out? But you just take a deep breath and live in this thing called, called grace, and let let God show you what it 's supposed to look like in your life there 's a third reality of what it looks like we take responsibility, and this is where it leads to and this is why we have this in our society when we live in shame, when we live in disqualification we can 't be accepted by God, then we turn to something or someone to answer to the brokenness in our life, and then what we live out is addiction because we can 't answer to the questions inside. We can't come up with answers to how to make ourselves better, so we turn to someone or something to somehow alleviate the torture inside of us. And then it just becomes a cycle over and over and over and over when God says, listen, just accept the gift of grace. It's been purchased for you on the cross. It's been taken care of. All you can do is say, yes, I submit to it. I receive it, and now I live Although I was a stranger, I live now, what, as a son or daughter until eventually my behavior catches up with my identity. Catch that? We always get it opposite. We welcome people in and say, you better get your act together. You better get your behavior right. No, no, no. Jesus never starts with behavior. He starts with identity. Because if you have the right behavior and the wrong identity, you will end up doing the wrong thing. Trust me. If you have the right identity and the wrong behavior, your behavior will catch up with your identity. That's why this is so important. It's this realm. It's this context that God gives to us. So I'm going to ask you if you would go ahead and just go ahead and close your eyes. We're going to conclude. Um, Danny, Liz, uh, Evan, you guys can come. And, and Danny, just, I'm going to ask you to cut some of the verses on the song you guys are going to go into. Just kind of stay out in the chorus a little bit. But we're going to sing a song that's familiar called Amazing Grace. Go figure on a day like this, right? But I'm going to ask you if you just close your eyes real briefly. What I'd like you to do is I really think it's important that you see where I think some of us are kind of at today in terms of God's grace. If, if God's grace is this context, it's this environment, it's it's his family that he wants to welcome us, welcome us into, God will never force you into something that you are choosing not to do. He won't force you to be one of his family members. He sees you and wants you, and the invitation's there, but but what is, is on our part, What, if you want to say even required, is that you have to step into the room. You have to step into the environment. You have to step into the context. You have to be willing to come in and be vulnerable enough before God to allow him to see all of who you are and that's allowing what's inside of you to be be brought to the service which he already knows but that's with this thing called confession which we actually admit what's inside which is what God, God already knows about us but i but i want you to, to understand that some of us are here today and we are struggling with the weight of this this thing and and not knowing how to deal with it and so we 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 try to really hold it together for ourselves. We try to make sure that we've got it all together, and and, and especially in following Jesus, and and make sure that we look right and we do right, and it's exhausting. Because you're not living in a context of grace. grace, You're carrying the weight of your life. And the best way I can describe this is, one of the, the, the experiences I had growing up, when my parents would travel from time to time, and they took one extended trip to the Philippines when I was really young, and I remember I had some separation anxiety, and when they went, I I knew that I had to gear up for three weeks, that they were going to be gone, and so I remember working really hard to, to hold my emotions together, to try to be strong, to try to do everything that I could do to try to hold it together so that I wouldn't look bad, and then the day finally came when they were coming back, and my grandparents took us down to LAX, and I remember standing at the end of this long corridor at LAX and and looking intently for my parents to turn the corner. And then I remember as they turned the corner of this long corridor and they were making their way to me and I, I, all of a sudden, out of the blue, I completely lost it. I started sobbing. And it's the first kind of memory I have of completely losing it and just uncontrollably crying. And even, I was so emotional at the moment, I didn't even realize in my tears, my feet started moving. In fact, I jumped over barriers and things that I wasn't supposed to go through because they were coming out of security and customs. And I remember I ran past everybody and I finally got to them and I grabbed them and I hugged them as I just sobbed. And I remember the feeling of seeing them and I realized I no longer have to carry the weight that only my mom and dad can carry in my life. I no longer have to be responsible for myself because mom and dad are here because mom and dad are safe some of you have worked really hard at trying to perfect your faith you've worked really hard at trying to hold your life together but if you're honest with yourself you've done that outside the context of God's grace And you have yet to let down the defenses and the walls and the exterior of who you are and really let God, in a sense, we use this term periodically, wreck you for his purpose. Disassemble the pride in your life. Expose you not to embarrass you, but to get down and to begin to work a miracle of forgiveness in your heart. Some of you have come in and out of grace. You've stepped in and said, yeah, I want to follow Jesus, only to follow others of you. You've never stepped into the room but no matter where you are today, God says the invitation is for you. I have made provisions through my son's death on the cross that I can call you son, I can call you daughter, but the only way that happens is if you step into relationship with me, you come close to me because I'm already close to you, and you embrace the fullness of my grace and my forgiveness and my mercy. If that's your desire right now, you can do that. You can say, yes, Jesus, I am stepping in. I am moving forward. I want to embrace the fullness of your grace, even if it means I have to be honest with my brokenness and my sin and my failure. I want to live. I want to be alive. I want the torment in my soul to be answered to. So Jesus, in these next few moments, would you come by your spirit and would you bring forgiveness? Would you change identity would you bring us to life? Would you beckon us to step into your grace and to remain in that place where we find who we are, what we're about, the purpose that you've given us for life? Jesus, would you do that in each one of us today? In your-